Hi, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of Bloomberg Intelligence Tech Disruptors podcast. My name is Anurag Rana, and I'm a technology analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, Bloomberg's in-house research arm. We're delighted to have Rich Lesser as our guest today, who's the global chair of Boston Consulting Group, BCG, and served as its CEO from 2013 to 2021. Rich, please uh, give us a little bit of a background of yourself and your career at BCG. Sure. Well, my career is a long one. So I just had my 35th anniversary uh, last month, uh, mostly client-centered for the first quarter century of it. But as you said, I became our CEO in 2013, uh, having done some other roles in, in uh, New York and North America prior to that. Um, and then I became our global chair uh, two years ago. And I would say a big focus of the time in, as CEO was this enormous wave. We first tried to ride and then we tried to get ahead of around how to support our clients in their digital agendas and then increasingly in their AI agendas um, because it was so fundamental to how they were thinking about uh, driving their own growth and improving productivity. And then uh, later in my tenure as CEO, a huge push also on climate and sustainability um, because that obviously was core and the world is so far behind on its journey and we can make a big difference there. And then along the way, of course, you try to build the depth of expertise and the focus on impact. Uh, the bar for our clients keeps going up and up. Since becoming our global chair focus, uh, a huge amount of my time on climate and sustainability issues all around the world, uh, both with individual clients and societally, as well as an increasing amount of time, particularly this year, on AI and, and specifically uh, generative AI, given what's going on, as well as helping new CEOs and contributing in other ways where I can. No, excellent. Now, this is the first year after the big financial crisis where we are experiencing pressure on tech spending. Uh, so if the businesses are really focused on cost cutting and less on innovation, how does that tie into this entire wave of Gen AI that we are seeing right now? So first, I think it's important to understand the environment. We've had an enormous wave of tech spending that's been going up, up, up over many, many years. Uh, at the exact same time, we're entering a more pressured market with going into this year, a huge amount of uncertainty. Are we entering a time of high inflation? Are we about to enter a recessionary period? And, men, and in a time of uncertainty, particularly after such a run-up on tech spending, I, I guess I wouldn't find it surprising that many companies are focused on ensuring they're managing costs carefully. They're driving for productivity. We see that across many, many of our clients. And um, while I think we're more optimistic, uh, we've been more optimistic for a while, but I think the world is more optimistic that we could get to a soft landing. There's still enough uncertainty, and we see it in the surveys we do, that many, many executives are still very focused on cost. But there's a flip side to a soft landing that is really important. The soft landing is not we're going to have a super high growth macroeconomic environment. That is not where we're heading. We're heading probably to a slower growth macroeconomic environment, particularly with China, China's growth being under more pressure. It was such a fuel for the world uh, for many, many years. And in that backdrop, there's more pressure on companies to innovate. There's more pressure on how do you adapt and ad adapt to and adopt new technologies to fuel that. And when we survey 
CEOs and senior executives, we also hear a lot of emphasis on how important innovation is, how core it will be to their future growth. They're not just going to get to ride overall macro trends up. They're going to have to differentiate to drive the growth we need. So I, my expectation is, on the one hand, we will continue to see a focus on cost and productivity, but but in parallel, as companies get a little more confident about the macro economy and with the Gen AI revolution and, frankly, other technologies maturing, we'll see a really big push on innovation in the years ahead. You know, Rich, um, you know, our podcast is about disruptive uh, disruptors, and there is no more disruptive technology right now than Gen AI. Um, almost all the podcasts that we've been doing have a, a fair amount of Gen AI discussion in it. And um, would love to, to understand from you that when you are talking to your customer, customers, what are on top of their mind? Right. So, well, first, I agree with your point. I, you know, I've, as I said at the beginning, I've been doing this 35 years and I have never seen a technology have such a fundamental change in the dialogue with clients in such a short space of time. I've seen it happen over three or four years, but not so much just just from BCG alone. I think we're now well over a thousand uh, senior executive workshops on how Gen AI can work across the world, not just in any one geography or any one sector. And now well over a hundred client engagements to actually use and deploy generative AI in their organizations. And that's from like a standing start in March, you know, or February. So it's it's really quite remarkable how fast this is occurring. So then to your question. What I would observe is you get both kinds of questions. You get a lot of companies, particularly big companies outside the tech world who are saying, how should I even think about this technology? How does it fit with AI and digital agendas I've been pursuing for years? And what matters most? And where do I get started? But you also get, we also see Sometimes it's the leader of a particular function or a company focused in a particular area that comes with a very targeted question. I have a very high customer service is a very high part of my cost base, and it's key to how my customers perceive my brand. Can I both increase the quality of value I deliver to customers and dramatically lower the cost? I have a very complex marketing function. How can I fundamentally rethink marketing to use these tools to be able to create programs in days that used to take weeks, cascade them across geographies and across different media platform in easy ways. So I would say we are both seeing the broader company level questions about where to focus and what to do. And we're seeing the specific function questions like take this function, fundamentally rethink it. And frankly, sometimes we're helping clients to realize it's not just about deploying a tool, that this is such a fundamental tool that what seems like a very narrow question actually is a much broader question about how do you not just upskill a workforce, but reskill a workforce? How do you build and not get rid of engineering capabilities, but, but orient them in different directions? Um, how do you rethink the way you're going to do workforce planning? And so th those are those are bigger questions than just, you know, cool new tool. How do we use it? Is there any gut feeling or that you have that what really drove this? Because as you're right, I have never seen so many inquiries, incoming inquiries about a particular technology. And we've been following cloud, let's say, for 15 years. So 
cloud adoption is still nascent, but it seems like this technology is going to be uh, adopted at a much more rapid pace than, than anything we have seen. So, first of all, it's so easy, you know, like, like probably, you know, 90% of executives, you get a hold of BARD or you get a hold of OpenAI and you start putting questions into it that are hard questions. You know, I went back to our founder and I said, how would you describe the BCG experience curve, but do it in the form of a Shakespearean sonnet? And, and I get back like remarkably good stuff. And I think it was shot, you know, BCG has been talking about the power of AI to transform businesses probably for eight years now. Um, but, you know, it was very math oriented. You, when, you, when you could show real life examples of companies that were doing it incredibly well, like, you know, what Starbucks does with its loyalty card members and things like that, you can find examples, but it's hard to as viscerally feel it. I think for many executives, you know, the Christmas holidays last year and starting to type things in and see it, it started to hit home in a much more visceral way than most technologies do so early in their in their uh, public life. And then I think the second thing is everybody's been wrestling with some of these challenges about how to get adoption, how to use it. And when it's so much easier to have interfaces um, and, and to connect to, you can suddenly envision how your whole organization could use something versus when it's highly technical, you know you need it, you know you need to put it in, but it's for a fairly small portion of your employee population. It's not not as clear how to deploy it. What I would say we've been learning since then, so now, you know, we've got this benefit of now so many experiences of companies of all sizes across all sectors, is we're seeing three broad sets of opportunities. Opportunity one is about tool deployment, the ability to have a better tool to read contracts, a better tool to write software, a better tool to understand your policy manual and help someone access the key insights from it. And we'll see lots of the tools and the tools will yield productivity improvements. It will be up to each company because we saw past software tools that actually just led to people writing more memos or drawing more PowerPoint slides with niftier graphics. And while the tool was a really nice tool, it didn't necessarily translate into productivity. So there's a lot of work just to highlight, not just to figure out who the right tool and vendor is and introduce it in your company, but ensure it's actually really translating to bottom line productivity improvements and you've replanned your function around that. That's the narrowest opportunity. I don't want to minimize it. It'll be a big deal to help productivity, but it's not going to drive competitive advantage because frankly, those tools are going to over a couple of years go to everyone. The second is not just build the tool, but rethink how the function operates. And that often requires the combination of generative AI and predictive AI. Think of it as like left brain, right brain. The predictive AI stuff we've been doing is a very left brain kind of heavy core analytic activity. Generative AI is much more right brain, more integrative, able to deal with unstructured things, pull things together. You need both if you're gonna do something fundamentally different. And I think the opportunity to rethink customer service, IT, marketing, engineering, really requires using generative and predictive AI and, and thinking about all the workforce implications. And then the third is to really invent business models, actually bring a whole new capability to a customer set, whether it's an agent 
that you know a customer can rely on, whether it's a way to design a semiconductor differently, where 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 you use Gen.ai to create initial drafts or a protein to solve a medical problem. And you just think about the whole business model differently. And I think now that we're starting to get experiences, we're seeing big opportunities in all three of those vectors. Uh, the, the, the one comment you made about business processes is probably the most important one uh, in my view right now. Do we have to redefine how we do things you know, in a completely different way or it'll be more relevant for some industries versus the other? Which industries do you think we're going to see the biggest uh, disruption? So in all honesty, I, I actually think this tool is so broad in how it's used that we're going to see it play across all industries and many, many functions. I'm not saying every function or every company. It will be very hard to envision uh, companies not thinking about some of their core functions, whether it's customer service or marketing or so forth, and not looking for opportunities to build new business models around it. I do think we feel like there are places like healthcare that are going to race to embrace this. When we looked at like the med tech function or things like a med tech businesses, you know, we saw so many places you could apply this. And and I and, I, and so I want to I want to highlight that I think that there are sectors that will maybe go a little bit faster than others. Um, but but I don't it, I think it's very hard to be a business leader right now and not be thinking about the tools that you can deploy quickly, the functions you can fundamentally reshape, and then how you think about business models in more fundamental ways. You know, you said there's a high interest from clients when they first call you and they first start talking about it. What are, you know, how are they approaching this? What kind of use cases do they want to experiment with and, and then move forward? I think right now, clients are often just trying to figure out how to navigate this and what they're concerned about. And we think they should be concerned about is this sort of thousand flowers bloom, partly because there's responsibility issues. Could you infringe upon IP? Could it, can you let people do things that hallucinate in ways you don't expect, you know, that, the, that they may not be aware of, but partly because it's a huge dissipation of resources to do. So I think companies understand it's important and want to figure out how to, start to move forward with it, but are very concerned about a world where every department, every function, many individuals just start using it in their own ways. And in fact, in many cases, a lot of our, our work is in this very first step, which is to say, what are the outcomes at scale that fundamentally strengthen the business? They could be straight productivity outcomes, and maybe others in your industry will be able to adopt them too. So it's not about competitive advantage, but it is absolutely about improving productivity uh, across specific parts of the enterprise. Then I think there's a second question of what are the outcomes at scale that you could introduce that if you could leverage proprietary data, combine generative AI and predictive AI, rethink how an entire function or business model operates can really be used to drive competitive advantage. And we find a lot of our early work, the first month or two of work is really helping hone in on these are the outcomes that really matter. These are the ones that can make a difference in the business. And now let's figure out how to how to go after those. And it's not saying that you don't let people think about other things. Of course you do. But you you try to prioritize resources, talent, investment levels to really go at the things that are really going to drive the business. Rich, you know, I've 
follow this space for a while. And, you know, a few years ago, we saw some real big hype from, you know, IBM and, and what Watson can do. And then that led to a lot of discussion around predictive analytics and big data. And I mean, it's just something new. Talk about data analysis that shows up. How do you differentiate between the big data and predictive and analytics world and, and then generative AI? Look, there is real value in the predictive analytics, and we've seen it in a lot of the work we've done on. I mean, if I take an example that I was writing about in the 80s about personalization, we called it segment of one marketing back in 1989, uh, one of my first projects at BCG. But it was just like unaffordable for most companies that were trying to sell products. And now you look at the ability of so many companies to deeply understand how their customers behave, how other customers of similar demographics or segmentate in a similar segment would behave and be much more predictive. And then to be able to use that to build a relationship, um, it's, it's you know really quite powerful. We've seen it on operations. So I don't want to minimize the power of the predictive AI, but it tends to be um, harder for the broader organization to access it tends to get you partway to the answer, but it doesn't actually write the marketing copy or um, publish the guidebook for a department to take advantage of the operational effectiveness. And what Gen AI, that's why I really wanted to stress here that at least what we're seeing is it's when you can combine Gen AI and predictive AI, you use the Gen AI to be able to take a lot of unstructured data and make it structured data. You use the Gen AI to be able to be creative, to actually write a first draft of something, and maybe it can write the final draft. In most cases, it needs humans in the loop, but, but it can generate copy or it can generate ideas for people to use in a call with a customer or other things. That's what Gen AI can do. But what the predictive AI layer can do is get into the deep insights and the deep analysis and be grounded in data and history and and be much more effective as a tool to get to the right answer. And the generative AI allows you to take those right answers and make them easier to access and incorporate unstructured data, which is what companies often have a lot of, into that analytic toolkit that has not been possible before. That to me is it. You asked the second question kind of implicit in the way you started it. Is there hype here? Like, is it is it sort of overstated for what it's going to be able to deliver? And I think the honest answer is we're in a period of very high learning. And so I do think, I, of course, when you're in a period of high learning, people will try stuff that won't work. Opportunities you thought were big opportunities won't turn out to be as big, either in terms of productivity or in terms of really bringing more customer value. So I, I think you know, if you're a business leader, anytime the world changes, you have to be prepared to try some stuff that works and try some stuff that doesn't work. And, um, and, and particularly with generative AI, one of the things I want to stress is predictive AI was largely about math. It was cleaning the data, getting the right data, building the right algorithms, figuring out how you'd scale those algorithms across much broader data sets and use them. It was, it was, at the heart of generative AI, of predictive AI is math. You get to generative AI, it's much more biology. I mean, there's a science underneath, but you don't know exactly how the whole system works. You, you have a general direction you're heading, but you have to be much more experimental and seeing what works and doesn't work, almost in the way evolutionary biology has done that over billions of years 
on earth to get to the best answer that doesn't just directionally solve the problem you want to solve, have a great interface for a customer, have a great uh, design opportunity, but actually addresses, well, where did it go wrong? Or why did it think incorrectly about this or, or produce an answer that didn't make sense? And so I think that companies who use this have to think about it more as um, a product design element than a model build element. Predictive AI was largely about a model build, and it's still really important. Generative AI is more like a product design model. You have a general outcome you're trying to drive to. You feed in data. You test it. Some things work. Some things don't. You iterate. You iterate again. And over time, you get to something much more powerful. It's a very different mindset, particularly for departments like IT and you know, others that are that are not built to be the product designers in many cases, the people who, you know, are on hardcore logic streams and A leads to B leads to C. This is this is a bit more organic in nature. But, but Rich, one of the things or this is kind of my pushback is the entire world of the Fortune 2000 is nowhere close to a digital journey where there should be. The data is disaggregated all over the place. You know, only a small portion of the assets are on the cloud. So how do you really get the benefit of AI or generative AI if you just don't have a good structured data or, a, I mean, I shouldn't say structure, but a whole schema of data that you can access in the right way? I'm so glad you raised this because I think there was a sort of mythology. Again, everything's going so fast. We're only talking months ago. We're not talking like 10 years ago about generative AI that, you know, we wouldn't need engineering anymore. You know, we wouldn't need some of the hardcore, you know, the, the, the old kind of AI required all this hardcore data platform, get the clean the data, get it in shape. And now here comes generative AI and it just magically produces really interesting answers. And and I, I, I think we have the same observation that you do, that our need for really good engineering inside companies to be able to get the data in the right places, build the platforms, you know, is going to be really important. We are not witnessing the demise of the need for great technology departments and great collaboration across functions to get data into a common platform and a common format that can be used, that can be cleaned the right way, to have a responsible AI governance framework underneath it to ensure it's being managed the right way. And 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 I think that, you know, there was this mythology about, you know, because you could go get your Shakespearean sonnet written, you know, in five minutes, and it was like magic that would transform the company. It's going to take a lot of hard work. But I also want to stress the other side of it, just so we're clear. We've watched um, and, and sometimes, you know, tried to help companies get in and fix situations where they spend so much time on how will I build the platform, almost like, um, you know, the old baseball movie, uh, you know, if you build it, they will come like, like we're going to work for years on building a platform. And once we build this sort of perfect platform, magic will suddenly pop out of it in the form of, you know, new tools that our teams can use and new revenue and new productivity. And we have over and over again stressed to clients, you have to go through the exercise at first, at right at the front, where are their outcomes at scale that will really change business performance, not to get away from needing to get the right data in place, build the platforms, but because the risk of spending, in some cases, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars building platforms that turn out not to deliver against use cases to a degree to really drive high ROI. We've seen that happen over and over again. Um, 
if I just step back, one of my uh, favorite pieces of research of the year um, was this thing about what is fit for future. Uh, what does it mean to, you know, how do you get ready for, and what are the leading companies? You know, we, we saw companies sort of falling on around a bell curve of adoption of AI and technology and, and what were the elements that really drove advantage? And it ended up six things. One was around leadership and purpose, a clear sense of direction. And it's driven by the CEO, not by the technology team. One was a huge focus on the people elements. And how do you build people advantage in that? A third was much more agile operating models that you need the tech teams much more integrated with the users of the information, whether it's in the marketing department or sales or operations. The fourth is a huge emphasis on innovation and being willing to try things and having a learning mindset. The fifth was about these data platforms and modernized technology. And the final one was about embedding AI deep in the organization. And now we're going back only nine months in, but you know, a little bit into the gen AI wave. And what we're finding is the companies that had put those six elements in place for predictive AI and digital technologies are finding it much easier to figure out what to do with generative AI. And the companies that struggled to put those elements in place are finding themselves really at a loss. They know this gen AI stuff is really important, but how to get it embedded and used is, is much more of a struggle right now. So there's some core things that are foundational to how the company wants to operate that make a big difference here. No, that's rich. That's exactly my point. And again, I said, you know, is it's easy to train an LLM on the internet just because there's vast amount of data and you can get things back. But when it comes to an enterprise, that data is disaggregated. So unless you have a clean data, you know, model or a clean data strategy, you are not going to get any benefits out of it. I agree with you, but I just want to jump in. Yes, you're right. But if you start with the, let's focus all our effort on getting the clean data. And then once we get all that data together, then we'll find miraculous answers that are going to drive business value. That's not right either. And that it's this intersection of knowing the outcomes that can really drive the performance and then investing the effort, whether it's the data platform, the technology platform, and the huge people transformation to use this stuff. It's the people that can do both that are going to get the value out of it, not one or not the other. Yeah, in, you know, within that same framework, part of these big large language models is they train on some data, then they become better, and then they can be utilized somewhere. The executives that you talk to, are they comfortable in sharing their internal data with these LLMs? Because somebody else may benefit out of that uh, with the learning from, from, from those findings. For sure not. For sure not. If you say, what are the worry? There's a long list of worries about gender. We've talked more about the upside, but we would be remiss not to acknowledge the worries, starting with, you know, um, pr protecting proprietary data, um, biases in models, things that drive to societally inappropriate outcomes, even if it's business performance optimizing. Um, so there's a lot of concerns. And I think you've highlighted one of them. I don't think that generative AI will really take off till people feel like they can take a base foundation model that is really good from you know one of the three or four players that are likely to emerge in this space. And then they can add in their proprietary later, have their models drive very much off of the proprietary data they add into it and be assured in the way that that's done that that proprietary data doesn't leak back into the broader model. And I think a number of the 
the generative AI players are realizing that that's key and they're trying to come up with solutions on how they're going to offer that to their to their business customers. I think until they demonstrate that they can do that, there will be a real hesitancy to adopt it for exactly the reason you articulated. So that's one danger, which is, you know, the data, the internal data. What are some of the other fears that executives have shared with you when it comes to Gen AI? Well, we're already seeing the first round of lawsuits against these platforms about using other people's data. I mean, part of the reason people will want to train on their own data also will be to make sure that when they come up with that new marketing campaign or when they come up with that new product idea that they won't be subject to someone saying, well, you took that from me. It ended up in a Gen AI platform. That's my data or that's my idea, not your idea. So I think there'll be a lot of emphasis to make sure that the enter what 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 these tools generate are legitimately owned and can be defended in liability claims or other claims. I think there's obviously a lot of scrutiny from society. It will start in Europe, as many of these things do, but it will be in other places. If not the whole United States, I'm sure there will be states in the U.S. that adopt fairly similar platforms, as we saw in GDPR and privacy, um, that will put a huge emphasis on making sure that these models act in societally responsible ways. And that that's not just about good intent. That's about having the governance models that don't just ensure that the intent of what we're trying to do up front is responsible. It's also about a, a governance model that actually looks at real life outcomes, has the sophistication to check, well, we weren't trying to bias against low income people or women versus men or a particular population versus another. But is that the outcome we're producing? And if we're producing, let's understand why, but let's make sure that we're not scaling models that have those elements in them. And, and there are so many different kinds of, you hear about it most frequently in sort of hiring models that have bias. Um, uh, but, but, but there are many other ways. I, I, I used the example earlier about personalization. I think personalization is a fantastic tool to be able to bring to customers to bring more value to them. But you have to be sure that your personalization isn't embedding a higher price for people just because they may have less income or lower sophistication or whatever. I mean, there's certain things about personalization that could be very well intended to bring more value to each customer for the things they matter, but produce outcomes that have biases against certain population that is not aligned with the company's purpose or societal expectations. So. So I think that, you know, what we're finding is there's a, there's a lot of focus. We, the responsible AI is sort of often the phrase. That's the phrase we use a lot. We published an article even before the Gen AI uh, wave sort of hit at the end of last year with Microsoft that we worked together on. And, 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 and we're very focused and we see many of our clients focused on as we build all these new capabilities, what is the responsible AI governance model? What are the layers of capability training we need to embed? What are the processes we need to put as we create new tools to ensure they're, they're um, meeting our internal expectations? And how do we check them after the fact to make sure that we didn't just have good intent and what we thought was a good design going in, but real world outcomes are meeting that bar. And, and, you know, responsible AI is first and foremost a responsibility of the CEO and the leadership team. It is not a technology. There is a role for the technology team in it, but it, the first job is the CEO, just like they focus on diversity in their 
hiring practices or um, responsibility for climate and nature, what all the responsibilities we think ultimately bubble up to the CEO, you know, responsible AI is one of them. And I think that that will require governance, just like many of these other elements do. So, Rich, how are you or, or BCG implementing Gen AI into your day-to-day -day business? So we're like many other companies in the sense that we, we are a knowledge-based business. We operate on so many different topics around the world. And so our first wave, the focus we had, actually some work with Intel last year, was to build an LLM that was based on BCG's uh, proprietary knowledge management platform, make that available to our entire team. We did that uh, in the early part of this year. And so the first thing is just help our colleagues. Of course, we have to make sure, as we've been doing for years, that everything in that platform is uh, sanitized data. We have very strict rules. In fact, it makes it maybe a little harder in some ways for us than other kinds of companies that what goes in can, has to always be sanitized so that we're not unintentionally bleeding data from one client to another. Those processes were already in place, but we need, you know, you need to make sure they work in the new models as well. But that's was the first stage. But I think that um, the, the efforts underway now to be able to bring our insights to our clients in different ways to help bring to our teams, not just knowledge, but creativity of the kind that generative AI can help with, help them think about how we can boost uh, productivity of their efforts, including you know, the, the Microsoft Copilot or things like that, where we're one of the early adopters of that. I think those tools are, are quite important. So we actually have a very large internal team that what we would encourage clients to do, map all the outcomes that we could bring, think about which ones we can do in the very short term, which ones are more medium term, figure out what technologies we'll work with. You know, we've we've had partnerships now with Google, with Anthropic, uh, with with Intel, with, and, and, and a great collaboration with OpenAI and, and a longstanding relationship and partnership with Microsoft on different topics. And so how do we how do we leverage those different platforms to figure out which ones are right for different spaces? Start with knowledge because it's such an easy win for us. Uh, we have so much and we can do so much with that, but then expand it to other things over time. You know, other than generative AI, what are some of the other key areas that you're focused on right now that's of interest to the C-suite? So, well, first, as you started this interview, there are a lot of short-term pressures our clients are are facing in many, many industries. So how to how to drive productivity in the near term. And of course, generative AI may be a tool for that, but there's many things to do beyond that. So there's been a lot of focus in this year on how to help drive resilience and productivity and ensure the businesses are in an operating sense running really tight. That's been a very high priority this year, not surprisingly, given where the world is. Um, it varies a little bit across sectors and across the world, but you know where I spend most of my time, the climate and sustainability topic is a very high priority topic for a large number of companies trying to figure out how they evolve their own pathways on a path to net zero. Uh, what, what kinds of targets should they set for themselves? How should they communicate it? What do they do in their own enterprise? How do they work across their entire value chains? whether it's to create more energy efficient products for their customers or to help their suppliers decarbonize, you know, very heavy emitting sectors and be a be a good partner, a good customer to them in those journeys. 
So I would say that's very important. I think one of the things we're seeing around the world and certainly in the U.S. is a huge push on infrastructure and how we're going to build the infrastructure, which affects both private companies and the public sector, whether it's in semiconductors or physical infrastructure or digital infrastructure. That's been a very big push. Um, and then, of course, you know, as, as we talked, yes, there's a lot of focus on generative AI, but there's a lot of opportunity in predictive AI and the digital wave that's been going on for a while. And while generative AI is getting the headlines right now, a lot of opportunities remain in, in digitization and predictive AI and now how you combine those elements together. And that remains a very big part of our work. No, that's fair. You know, the energy transition and uh, is something that we don't talk about often, but I would love to hear, you know, your thoughts about is that being driven by uh, companies' ESG initiatives or are they genuinely, you know, interested in reducing their carbon footprint and, and, and embracing some of that, those technologies? So for most companies, they recognize that they have a responsibility to um, lower their own footprint uh, as it relates to greenhouse gas emissions and things that are driving climate change, and that that needs to be a core part of areas they seek to improve. But the way it sticks, the way it really gets embedded is when companies can see how that aligns to driving value creation for the enterprise over the long term. Maybe with an upfront investment, like many other priority areas, you invest for a while. But that so so a lot of our work in this space is, of course, acknowledging that there's a societal responsibility, but then really focusing on this is going to be like the largest trend of um, reindustrialization, changing the industrial footprint that we've seen in many many decades, probably since the end of World War II. We're talking give or take two and a half to four trillion dollars a year for 30 years. And this is a massive thing. And so so for almost every sector, there's the opportunities to take advantage of that, to find the tailwinds that can be a source of future growth, future growth to reshape what customers want, future growth to find innovative products, future growth to provide the infrastructure that other customers need to meet the goals that they've committed to. And so a lot of our work is two things. One, what is the transition plan to decarbonize uh, and to mitigate you know, the emission, today's emissions that actually align to business value creation? Because that's what makes it sustainable. The risk is if you're only doing it for reasons that have nothing to do with the core business, you can focus for a while, but then when tough times hit or priorities change, it loses emphasis. The way to have it stick is when it's integral to the business strategy. And then second, what does it take to really make it work? Because actually, in many cases, the measurements aren't in place. The engagement with suppliers or customers is very difficult. It, you know, there's so many times I've talked to upstream players who say, I read what the downstream customer, what my customer CEO says in the newspaper or on a video, but then I talk to that customer's procurement person and the procurement person has zero interest to talk about my decarbonized offering. They want to talk about, you know, how much can I get of this particular product that hits this particular price point and don't bother me with the rest. So there's a lot of work to do to actually embed good intent 
and a clear business strategy into an operating model that cuts across so many different parts of the business from how you design products in R&D to how you work with your supply base, to how you run your own operations, to how you set your goals and, and ensure that things stick. I mean, that's it's a big challenge. And, and, and again, it depends where you are. I would say for most European CEOs, this is a top three priority. It really is. I would say that's true for some American CEOs, but you know we know how uh, different it is here where we haven't been able to really put a price on carbon. The dialogue's become much more political. I think it's still on most CEOs' radar screens, even in the US. You know, Sometimes it's probably not as high as it should be on that list. Oh, Rich, this has been a lot of fun uh, talking to you. Um, let me just ask you one final question. If you were to rank... Um, uh, you know, areas of interest by CEOs. Um, I'm, I'm fairly certain Gen AI is probably at top, but I would love to hear from you is the top three things that most people care about right now. And how do you think that's going to probably change a year from now? So I'd say there's four things that I would say are very high on the list right now. I would say there's still a lot of emphasis on, you know, managing for a, a challenging and uncertain short term that many companies are dealing with. I would say how they think about um, AI and digitization and now specifically the added emphasis as we've discussed today on, on generative AI is very high on the list. I would say navigating a much more complex geopolitical world what it means to have a resilient global supply chain, how they manage their business footprint, their investments for a much more complex world would be the third. And, and for climate and sustainability. And frankly, how to think about responsibilities that go alongside that um, uh, for nature. I mean, you know, um, climate gets a lot of the focus, but for many companies, I'm seeing an increased focus that biodiversity, uh, waste, uh, water, those elements are, are really moving up the priority list alongside climate. So I'd maybe make a, a broader statement around climate and sustainability as the fourth. And, and so those four, if you ask me where I think we're going, well, first, I must admit, I'm on the cautiously optimistic side on the uh, economy. And but as we've, as I've said in other settings and written about, you know, there are hard edges to a soft landing. And some of those hard edges are finding growth and innovation in a slower growth world. And so I think growth and innovation are going to be much higher on the list. Of course, we're Gen AI and AI is part of the solution, but it's not the only part. There's amazing new technologies coming along in physical sciences and nanotech and synthetic biology, as well as classic innovation through better understanding customer needs and creating new offerings. I think that will go up in priority in particular over the year ahead. I hope as companies start to create their plans for a different geopolitical landscape, they'll be more in the implementation phase of those plans. And that's not that that won't be an ongoing concern, but maybe it'll take a little less share of the senior executives and some of the other topics, but we'll see. We'll see. You never know. It's been a challenging world in that regard. That'd be my list. No, that's interesting times, Rich. Thank you so much for your time. And we look forward to having you, let's say, a year from now uh, where we can go and re-examine some of these issues. Yeah, see if I was right. You can come back and replay and see if I'm on track. Anyway, it's great to talk, Anurag. Thank you.